Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Incredible energies coming off of this. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We've got something so interesting for you today. Merrin, who's with me today, what have we got? Today, Alex, we have got the lovely Sierra Barnes with us, and she's going to be talking to us about something she's worked on for a while, something really quite new. It's a very visual medium. We're going to be talking about her creation, Hans Vogel, and you will find Hans Vogel brought to life in image form on the internet, because Hans Vogel, how do you describe it, Sierra? How do you describe his... his, his medium comic form, is that still the proper term? Yeah, I mean, I would say comics, uh, if you want to be fancy, I guess you could say it's a graphic novel. (laughs) Graphic (laughs) novel, no, it makes perfect. So this is great. So you've used Hans Vogel to bring World War II to life, but it begins, I mean, the title of it is quite obvious because the title is Hans Vogel is dead. What happens to Hans and why does he start dead and what have you done what what have i done yeah. <laughs> i <laughs> yeah i um i wanted to talk about sort of world war ii but uh from the perspective of looking back at it um and back at uh specifically sort of fascism which i understand is having a bit of a hot spot right now which is tragic um and so I, uh, I start the book, Hans Vogel dies. He, he gets shot down and killed in the Battle of Britain. He has a really bad time. Um, but unfortunately, his problems only start there. He wakes up in a sort of afterlife based on the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. But the fairy tales are being corrupted by uh, fascist ideology. So now he's got to go around, unlearn all of the bad stuff that he learned in life and start being a better person. And uh, we get to go dissect a lot of fascist mythos and history, both sort of World War II and other folkloric. Um, I think the time period that I've chosen for the uh, fairy tale world is roughly Napoleonic Wars, because those are when the Brothers Grimm were running around. So uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I've been I started in 2015, so now my baby is like a toddler, so that's scary. Oh. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's sort of an anti-fascist 
fairy tale, historical fiction, comic book, graphic novel, webcomic situation. See, we've worked with you on the Great War Group because you did a cartoon. And I happen to know that you have rather a thing for German aviators in terms of you're really into the history, aren't you? I do. Yeah, that was my uh, primary focus for one of my primary focuses for undergrad was um, specifically sort of that jump from uh, World War One German aviation and this whole night of the skies. I'm making little scare quotes with my fingers. Um uh, in World War One, to the the Luftwaffe in World War Two, and sort of how that uh, mythos was created, and what the reality of the situation is. I wrote a breathless term paper on the Red Baron specifically uh, in my freshman year, I think, and I was like, "It's all a lie," but I still love him. But peanuts <laughs> lied to me, but. <laughs> So I should just mention that um, while while our audience is listening to this, you can actually log on, find yourself a laptop or even a mobile and see Sierra's comic because it's open access, isn't it? It is. You can read it all for free. The print version is coming out in September. Um, it's going to be mm-hmm. kickstarted through Cast Iron Books, thanks to Lizzie Kay. Shout out to Cast Iron and Lizzie Kay. In, um, I think they're in Yorkshire, actually. They're with you guys on the so other side just, of the pond. Just before we start pinning you down and unpicking how, how Hans Vogel gets to be who Hans Vogel is, can you give us the, the, the web address so that um, people who are listening to this can actually have a look and see the, the fantastic imagery as well? What's the easiest web address to use? Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's super easy. It's hansvogelisdead.com. Well, that couldn't be easier, could it? Okay. Right. So, so now we've got people typing away and hopefully looking at what we're talking about. Can you tell us what was the inspiration behind Hans Vogel? Or more to the point, yeah, what, what was your inspiration, not just for the story itself, but for the characters involved? Yeah, I, I it sort of uh, went through a journey. My original concept for the story, actually, the only thing that hasn't changed has been the Hans Vogel's name and the title. Um, I, in, I came up with the first concept in 2010 when I was in... Uh, high school and was like, I'm going to write a story about a, a Hessian mercenary who gets lost in the American revolution. And then he ends up finding a bunch of Pennsylvania Dutch and they hang out. Um, and that lasted about like 2.5 seconds because then I started reading about, I think my German high school, German class watched Dust boat. And I was like, Oh no, this is, this is, much this is where, <laughs> yeah, we gotta go with this. Um, so I, I sort of, let the, I, I knew I wanted him to be a pilot, um, but I sort of sat on that idea and let it percolate for another god long time. Um, <laughs> and I, I did undergrads. Uh, I went to uh, I studied in Austria. I was on a, a teaching assistant's Fulbright scholarship in Austria for a year, uh, and I came back and I was like, "Here's the deal. I'm going to talk about." Um, sort of how this this young man gets indoctrinated uh, and then sort of walk that back and have him undoctrinate him. That's not a word. Um, no, <laughs> but okay. sort of, yeah, fine. It is it now. Could, it could be. Yeah, now it is. Um, but he, like, is sort of looking at a way to, to dissect fascism from the perspective of somebody who had grown up in it um, and pull it apart. Uh, because I, I sort of noticed growing up a child of... of uh, adventure lovers, watching a lot of Indiana Jones when I was a kid, and Nazis were just sort of like a stand-in for bad guys, but we didn't really 
know why they were bad guys. They were just sort of bad guys because they shot at Indiana Jones. Um, and I wanted to sort of pick apart more specifically why they were bad guys, but also sort of uh, why that was wrong specifically because I feel like it gets a little lost in the weeds when you start using just jackboots and armbands as a shorthand for bad guys mm. um so yeah a lot of uh I read a lot of post-war German literature um the tin drum uh uh, uh, uh payback by Gert Leidig um and a lot of it uses magical imagery uh the satanic mill by Otfried Preussler a lot of these things are sort of allegorical um, and specifically dealing with the trauma of World War II through the lens of fairy tales. And I wanted to sort of play with that tradition a little bit. Um, and so the fairy tale world and uh, Hans Vogel was, was born. I wanted to give him a sort of generic fairy tale name. So Hans and Vogel mm-hmm. means bird because he's a pilot and um, Peschvogel is a German word meaning it literally means a bird covered in tar uh but it means like an unlucky person so yeah. hans is the Peschvogel, and i love puns every name in the book is a pun um i'm sorry in advance <laughs> i love it but, uh, you, you, I mean, you've clearly you knew what your fictional character what was driving him and what you wanted to dissect using him but did you use any real people as inspiration for characters i did i read a lot of um pilot memoirs. So there's a little bit of Adolf Gauland in him. There's a little bit of Eric Hartman in him. Um, my absolutely real historical boyfriend, who is actually my boyfriend, the Red Baron. There's a little <laughs> inspiration taken from him. Um, my first middle school crush was the Red Baron. So that's like... Yeah, you're never letting a that lot. go. I'm never letting that go. Yeah. Mm. And you guys already, the Great War group already did their comic about the Red Baron. And I'm a little bit sad about it. No, because you did the one about um, Ekaterina Teodoru and it was amazing, Uh, but we had already booked in Tim to do the Red Baron, but we will. You get to do aviation, I promise you. It's fine. (laughs) But no, yeah, so so he's he's sort of an amalgamation of a bunch of other pilots plus other things and a little bit of uh, a lot of anxiety thrown in. So, so also, I, read- thing I was going to say it's interesting you call him an amalgamation of different the characters and the stories you've read. And, uh, and I think this, this whole construct of peeling back the layers of something that we perceive to be um, written in stone, as in Nazis are bad. Well, hang on, let, let's have a look at let, just peel that back a little bit and find out how we got to that point and how evil became evil. That's that's fascinating because I know that um, something we don't often look at is the, the real people between 39 and 45, what they were growing up with, what they were learning, what they were understanding. It wasn't necessarily, oh, there is good in the world and oh, there is bad in the world. It was far more pervasive than that. It was far more part of their lives. So you you mentioned the word amalgamated. You you brought all these characters together. How did you pick out which aspects of real events in in the timeline you wanted to to, to include in the story? I, I mean, I started out with sort of the, like, I knew that I wanted to go harkening back to that um, freshman year term paper. I knew that I wanted to have him be a pilot because the a deconstruction of the mythos of this, you know, the night of the skies, these chivalric pilots. I knew I wanted to have that in there. And I read, uh, there were several books that I read that were really key to that development. One was Blitzed by Norman Oler about drug use in the Third Reich. And I was like, 
absolutely Hans is on pervitin. He is addicted to methamphetamine. Yeah. And that plays a huge role in the first chapter. That's actually a huge contributing factor to how he dies. He's just coked out. He's self-medicating with meth and alcohol. And I'm eating around. Eating around. Yeah. He's, you know, he's, he's taking his, his meth with a chaser of champagne and you know but don't do that at home kids don't (laughs) not a role model for various reasons um but uh yeah I I sort of like individual stories would would stick out to me about like Eric Hartman when he was getting uh one of his medals uh, I think it was the oh the nice cross of the oaken something or other but he was on a train and he got so drunk at the party um, ahead of time he was he was supposed to be given the medal by Hitler but they threw a party and he got so drunk that he would just completely blacked out on the train there uh, and they had to just keep plying him with coffee and and getting him to throw up and he said that he couldn't even remember the ceremony and there's this picture of him being handed the medal by Hitler and he just looks like Hitler is is standing there and clearly looking at him and Hartman is just looking in the distance <laughs> 3000 miles away and i was like that is one that's just a ridiculous hilarious story but two it's sort of like a lot of young men self-medicating with with pretty powerful drugs you know there's a lot of like that's not that's not a good thing <laughs> no, <laughs> like that's, that's very... how they were dealing with the situation they were they were amping themselves up to get through it and some oh, of the, definitely yeah some of these groups i mean Pevitin being issued to the troops etc is a sort of an experiment in terms of well how can we make these troops more effective i know let's get them to stay awake for 22 hours a day that's a start that's one thing but when when the, the the reality is well how can i deal with the trauma of war i know i'll get wasted that's something completely different i, I don't think that it's really talked about a lot in circles i mean sometimes like this uh, a, I had a very good professor who was my like sort of guiding light in undergrad, um, Bruce Campbell, shout out. Uh, he, um, he loved to get into the weeds about the weird stuff. He was an ex, he remains an expert on the Fry Corps. And I just emailed him a while ago and was like, professor, can you just give me what you got on the Fry Corps? And he's like, here's all these sources, go crazy. Um, he's great. But like one of the things that he really encouraged me to do was sort of read between the lines on stuff. And so I did a lot of reading and once you start noticing it, the drugs and the alcohol and like the unhealthy coping mechanisms start popping up everywhere. Like you can't avoid them. And it's something that not a lot of media really talks about, I think. When you see sort of World War II media, you see sort of this monolithic block of the German soldier who is extremely powerful for some reason you know we just we don't know why and it's like okay well yeah it the blitz makes a lot more sense when you realize they didn't need to sleep it's yeah go figure that would really have an effect on your performance one way or the other it's crazy you so you picked world war ii you're clearly invested in the second world war history of this and sort of bringing it on from the interwar and the first world war as well but then what you do, because obviously he dies and he's not in the war anymore. I love that you've taken something else from history, which is grim and their settings, like you say, a more Napoleonic era and work that into it as well. So how did you work in the real life and interwar World War II history, which you so uh, are so passionate about? How did you work that into sort of the grim side and the, the fantastical side of this? 
I, I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of through lines, uh, as I like to think of them about between sort of the Napoleonic history and World War One interwar period. Um, I think that like there's one, it's it's never really as far away as you think it is. I think that's one of like the big uh, issues of, of history education is that they're all, you know, German unification, the Napoleonic Wars, the interwar period, all of this stuff is is pretty close together, relatively speaking. Um, and a lot of these traumas are still, I mean, 30 years war trauma is still kicking around. One of the things that I found really surprising uh, when I was in Austria in 2014 was that it was the centennial of World War I. Um, and whenever I would talk to the Austrians and they would talk about the war, and a lot of times they were referring to World War I. Uh, mm. And I was like, oh, well, um, sorry about that. But uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that was a hundred years ago. <laughs> like, oof, man. Um, I, I also like in America, I don't think we really talk about World War One as much as we, we should. That's, that's my, my like spicy take on World War One and World War Two is that it's just the same war. It's just, there's constant mm-hmm. political violence going on the whole time. The only reason it's arbitrarily divided up is because the United States decided to take a break in between, but that's my like. Yeah. It's, well, you're not alone. Conspiracy it's, theory. There's like a growing sort of group, isn't there, that say that it's actually just one Massive shit fest between 1914 and In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. 1945. Uh, yes, definitely banging the drum for that one. The, and, and I'm behind this because a number of people that, that say, oh, you know, the Nazis, they, they were bad from 1939 to 45. I'm sorry, the, the, the bad stuff was happening before 1939. They didn't just wake up one day and go, I know, let's do this. Let's be the far right. Well, no, I'm reading 1911, von Bernardi's book about the next world war. Mm. And I'm like, literally, if Hitler didn't just take everything that lunatic came out with and make it the Nazi playbook. And this is 1911. Mm. Like all his stuff about yeah. how people should be excited to die for the state and Germans having pure blood and weeding out the weak. And yeah, it's like, well, this sounds vaguely familiar from 25 years afterwards. Yeah, because the, the problems didn't happen overnight. They, they, people didn't sort of breed 16-year-olds. The whole population growing thing, that didn't just happen overnight. The diminishing resources didn't happen overnight. The big problem, capital T, capital B, capital P, emerged over a period of time. And and, and it wasn't just a case of, I know, one day we'll invade Poland. It's, it's like, no, we're going to have to handle this and deal with it. Not the best idea, the way they, you know, where they wanted to tackle it at the end of the day, but it didn't just start on one day. Yeah, and I, I think it's a very good point. So actually drawing in some of those storylines from, from earlier narratives makes perfect sense. It makes perfect yes. sense. And then, you know, the Napoleonic War specifically, that's where you start seeing really the rise of a German identity and German nationalism specifically. So you, you get the whole idea of a Germany and the Brothers Grimm obviously were contributing a lot to that. They were trying to sort of build this. And, and the nationalism of the 1800s, of course, is a different beast than the nationalism of the 1900s. Like the, the Brothers Grimm, there's no way that they could have foreseen what would have happened. Um, but there's there's a lot of threats that go into making this tapestry. And one of them certainly is sort of this 
deliberate manufacturing of a German cultural identity uh, that the Brothers Grimm were very gung-ho about. I mean, they were making a dictionary about German consolidating spelling, which, you know, I'm all about that. I love that because looking through German sources prior to the Brothers Grimm consolidated dictionary is like me reading aloud, crying to myself, trying to figure out what these words say. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Just send it to Nikolai. That's all I do with everything. <laughs> Translating from German. <laughs> The, the Grimm tales were really dark anyway, too, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, for, for all that we consider them to be the originators of fairy tales. I mean, they are, they are grim, like pun. <laughs> they are grim. They're you made know, I, fairies. They, they, I, I mean, I, these fairies are badass fairies. I, you know, fairy tale, I feel like it's a bit of a misnomer because a lot of them don't really have fairies uh, in them. And a lot of, like, fairy, the, the Brothers Grimm stories, I think, go sort of like, on this needle wildly in popular perception of either like the Disney-fied version, which I think is their like third edited edition is the one Disney pulled a lot of his ones. And like, actually the Brothers Grimm are deep, dark, super freaky torture stuff. Um, and it, it, most of the stories sort of fall on the spectrum uh, somewhere in between. There's certainly a lot of like people getting dark comeuppances. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of, dancing on hot coals and iron shoes and stuff. But on the other hand, there's a lot of German folklore that's literally just sort of one day. One of my favorite German folktales is, um, and it doesn't even have a name, it's just a folktale uh, about a man who finds a mysterious light. So he captures it because he's like, well, this is a lot cheaper than buying candles. Uh, and it turns out that it's a ghost. It's like a will-o'-wisp situation, turns into a skull with burning eyes. Uh, and then he just can't get it out of his house. So he has to like catch it with a net and then throw it out. And that's it. That's the entire story. And it's just <laughs> so <laughs> weird and freaky. <laughs> like, you know what? Like I thought the Matt Damon film, actually, that was quite dark. That The Brothers Grimm. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, well, that, yes. there was, it, was, it was hilarious. But it was definitely not. Uh, Disney was it? I thought it was fun. Yeah. So what what made you choose? What made you suddenly jump to? I mean, I know you were immersed in sort of Germanic culture, being in Austria as well. So it's it, what made you want to incorporate fairy tales and that aspect of culture into a World War Two project? I, I mean, I was definitely influenced by uh, sort of, as I said before, German post-war literature that used a lot of fairy tales and fairy tale imagery uh, to process trauma. Um, payback is really like, if anyone has read Payback by Gert Leidig, you know what I'm talking about. There's just this vivid descriptions of uh, specifically bomber crews, American bomber crews dropping firebombs on, I think it's Dresden specifically. Um, but there's this wonderful, I mean, wonderful sort of terrible awful, awe-inspiring scene uh, where the bombs are dropping and the people in the bomber are looking down below and they have this disconnect between the violence that they're causing uh, and, and the action of, of letting the bombs drop and the people are below are looking up and seeing the bombs dropping on them. And this is sort of, the, the bombs dropping is disconnected from both the, the bombers and the people who are having the bombs dropped on them. And it the act becomes sort of an act of God. It becomes this divine wrath. Um, and I that that's so interesting to me that that really just stuck in my head and everything freaky about the tinge. I mean, there's a lot of stuff freaky about 
the tin drum um <laughs> if, if you've read it you know uh but I just like fairy tales are such a an intrinsic to German identity I think uh and certainly intrinsic to sort of an outsider's perspective of German culture um and I think that it's it's only nat natural to want to dissect anything sort of German nationality if it, affiliated, if that makes sense, in the wake of, of national socialism. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Some, sometimes when we're talking about... Um, tertiary work as it as in work that's being produced today using primary or secondary sources as a reference point we forget that it's it's not all about um official documents that have come from a war office it's not all about well this was what was in the newspaper on the 3rd of september 1941 it's sometimes about that cultural narrative that appears in fairy tales in school books um on in in advertisements that are that are painted on walls back then there's there's a far deeper um seam of material that, that we perhaps should be using and referencing all of the time to make sure that we understand the the people's response to politic and the people's response to what was happening in the military um I've absolutely robbed off nikolai I was i posted him all his books the other day and just didn't send this one because i'm too obsessed with it first world war in german national identity and it's but it's also talking about austria and germany and why there was that tie and why they were so determined to stand by the Austrians like culturally as well as, as in like why it was obvious for the Germans to stand by Austria I mean as well as a politic decision um it's fascinating absolutely fascinating and also as well to read a Polish guy ripping apart Russia's assertion that um they were protecting Slavs he was like uh, hello Polish in Russia not being protected Ukrainians them neither so yeah it's absolutely fascinating and you're right it's not all about um archival documents no, no. But I, think, I don't know about you Marion but it's fascinating to hear how like because I see a graphic novel and I'm like oh pretty pictures so much thought goes into it and research and like academic level um thought that it's just brilliant it, it is and and it, it, no, it is. You're, you know, you're, you're looking shocked. It really is good. I mean, we, we all get wound up when we see things. We go, oh, that's not that. that those those aren't the right. Those aren't the right rivets on that tank. I'm afraid. But but tell me, what level of detail did you want to be comfortable with when you're doing things like starting to draw uniforms? Did you want to be spot on, or did did you want it to be more free flowing? 
Um, so I, yeah, that's a great question. Actually, um, I'm I'm very uh, obsessive to the point of sort of paranoia about the research. I know kind of, about this, the buttons. <laughs> you can you can look at the buttons. I was <laughs> I actually had a lot of trouble because um, Hans the, the the book starts out with Hans receiving uh, the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross, and uh, uniforms in in the Luftwaffe at this time period were a bit of a mess. Um, there's there's sort of a lot of inconsistencies. You see a lot of photographs of people wearing like all kinds of just weird stuff. Um, and you you have sort of like the official, here's, I I've just was gleaning a bunch of stuff from books on the internet and, and taking photocopies of my, my uncle has this very extensive library of books about the World War II. He's much more of a, a like war buff than I am. I'm much more of the sort of like, what's going on in the in the popular culture how are people feeling about things and he's much more of the like what kind of button does a like oberst in 1940 during the blitz wear on a tuesday morning kind of guy so already (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's he's great he officiated my wedding actually so that was it's um, great that you have someone like that on call as well as you go look at my picture and tell me what's wrong yeah, he, he's, yeah. <laughs> he's very, very understanding considering I have, uh, I brought a bunch of his books with me when I moved to Virginia. So sorry, Uncle Matt. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just was making a bunch of photocopies of his books. He had um, some, some old copies of Der Adler, the, the Luftwaffe magazine that had been compiled and put into print. And those were hugely helpful. There's actually a, um, one of the panels is just a spread from Der Adler uh, that I superimposed Hans's face onto but just kind of was copying articles from it so yeah, but, but um, I love this because somebody who if somebody says oh well, graphic novels you can't possibly do history and graphic novels well actually no if, if you've got a, um, a creator an illustrator designer writer all of those things combined as you, as you are Sierra if you've got a person who, whose commitment to detail from the outset is such that you can have confidence that what you're seeing is is going to reflect reality, then graphic novels are a very, very good way to get the younger generation in, re-engaged, if not engaged, in a subject that they're not actually really switched on to, surely. Oh, definitely. There's there's a lot of stuff like I I a lot of stuff that I that I do sort of feel very strongly about. There, one of the panels is just what Hans put in his emergency pack, which was not standardized in 1940. So there's a whole breakdown of everything he packed. Um, from like a sort of a tarpaulin kind of situation to he brought chocolate with him. He brought some family photographs. He brought jewelry to trade because he wouldn't have been able to get sort of foreign currency uh, in Germany for obvious reasons. Um, But he also had, you know, a lighter. He's got a mirror. He's got a flashlight, the kind of flashlight I had to look up because the German flashlights don't look like sort of what we would imagine, but part of being a graphic novelist is going, okay, in this scene, you know, on the scripting stage, you're like, Hans pulls out a flashlight and starts looking around the house. Um, but then you get to drawing it and you're like, okay, what does a flashlight look like in this time period? And uh, you got to look it up because if I had just drawn what I thought it mean, you know, 2018 or whatever, I was drawing this wow. page, if I drew what I thought a flashlight would be, it would be totally inaccurate. Um, it might, it's, do you know what though people must look at it and go oh look she drew a book of pictures because she couldn't write a real history book you clearly oh, yeah, get that. knowledge <laughs> and the education to have written prose um, and kind of asking you why I mean I could ask you why did you choose to do a graphic novel uh, because you're awesome at it because I've seen it 
Um, but do you ever, do you take shit from people because you decided to put it into this genre? I get a lot of weird stuff. Um, yeah, you, you, there's sort of this prevailing idea that graphic novels aren't real books um, and reading yeah. graphic novels isn't real. And especially, you know, with web comics, like that's like, that's like even worse than a graphic novel because you put it out on the internet for free. Um, but I, I grew up reading graphic novels in high school and that was my like fairy tale dream was I, someday I'm going to make a web comic. And I didn't think it would really happen. And then I came back from Austria and was like, actually, you know what, screw this. I can, I can just do it. And I think that's the beauty of graphic novels is that they're accessible to a lot of people. And I think that they can frankly convey a lot more information than just prose. I think mm. they're much more engaging. Um, we should say at this point that, that graphic novels and graphic illustrations, the Second World War in particular, are not a new thing. I'm, I'm holding up, um, what is this one? This is Born to Battle, a little A5 um, picture library um, publication. Most of these are only about 60 or so pages, and the, the, the illustrations in them can be quite rudimentary sometimes. But real boy's own stuff, Commando comics have been a way to communicate the 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 historiography for for for, for decades now haven't they so, so my question i'm sort of going around the question here is if, if if people are used to seeing comics and as alex said you know oh, it's, just, it's just a comic what's the process can you can you tell us a little bit about what goes into creating a comic and what your process was for, for hans vogel yeah we uh, i i start with Usually, uh, I have a rough outline, so I know how the story is going to end uh, now. I know how it's going to end now. I did not know when I started it, um, but I sort of come up with a general concept. I write Hans Vogel's script or chapter by chapter, so I will do a script for a chapter. Um, that usually involves a lot of research. Uh, it involves a lot of consuming media. I watch a lot of World War II movies. I watch a lot of, like, if the specific chapter has to do with a specific issue. So the, the chapter that I'm writing right now, uh, minor spoilers, involves a boxing scene. Um, so I did a lot of, I watched a lot of UFC. Um, <laughs> I watched a lot of boxing. I read up on uh, sort of 17th, 18th century, 19th century, early 19th century boxing rules, uh, which was pretty wild. There weren't a lot of rules. Of boxing just no biting. No biting. Um, one of the big things was you would hold coins in your hand. You, you were supposed to hold coins in your hand so you didn't claw each other's eyes out. And if you <laughs> let go of the coins, that was one of the loss. Like you would you would lose the match. Um, so that was like a fun thing. I was watching a lot of how to wrap your hands because visually I need to know sort of how that works in order to uh, draw that. Um, also just sort of I finally sat down and watched Band of Brothers, um, <laughs> which was unrelated, but I was trying to get back into the, the vibe, so to speak. Uh, once, the, once the script is done, uh, then I start pencils, which is just sort of a rough pass at all of the pages. And I see sort of how long the chapter is actually going to take in pages. Uh, and everything is very fluid at this point. So if this dialogue isn't working, then I change it. I changed the ending for this chapter like four times um, and had a whole like, heart to heart moment with my editor and my agent at this point. I was just calling him, Matt, why is this working? Uh, and it was great. Um, so feedback is always, I, I have this sort of network of beta readers that I'll send things to them and it's three in the morning and I'll be like, can you take a look at this when you're awake? Um, and once, right once pencils are done, yeah, right now, <laughs> ASAP, let's go. Um, and once, once pencils are done, 
uh, that's when I start really getting into the research visually element of it because you know when I pencil it's uh, I usually have to write in the panels what's happening because it's such a loose fast pass that I'll draw like a circle with like two dots and a line for a face and then I have to figure out what kind of expression that's actually supposed to be later or I'll write little notes to myself like look up what a bathtub looks like in this time period or what plants are growing in September in Austria at this time or um, wagons in the Napoleonic Wars. I was watching the Sharp series recently to try and <laughs> glean from the, uh, from the uniforms and stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's a disappointing lack of Prussians in Sharp, I will say. I know that it's not the campaign, but come on. Come on, guys. But um, there's Sharp's Waterloo. They must be in there, right? Yeah, but, but everyone's just sort of talking about the Prussians and then there's like five seconds of them on screen and it's like, well, okay. I, I just watched like a billion hours of Sharp running around Spain for five minutes of the Prussians. Like where- You know that'll be because they couldn't afford the uniforms, right? Yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's a damn expensive show to make. They save so much money on getting Sharp a new uniform. I mean, he just wears the same thing for the entire time. <laughs> he does. It's just getting rattier every episode. Sorry. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so I, I loved, because I actually, I saw your pencil passes of the, so if anybody would like to grab something of Sierra's to look at, um, just hop to the Great War Group website and buy issue two of the kids magazine because she did a graphic novel of Ekaterina Teodoro, who was a combatant, an actual fighting Romanian woman. Nutter, but such a good story. And Sierra brought her story to life. And like, I saw the thought that went into the panels like before, before they got perfected. And it actually looked like most of the work was done and most of the time was spent up to the point where you did the pencil passes. It was really quick. After you knew where everything was going, the actual doing the finished panels was really quick. Uh, that was that was because the, pe the pencils that I sent to you uh, for that project were much nicer than the pencils I do for myself. <laughs> I, as I knew someone else was going to be looking at them, so I was like, oh, these need to be legible. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for, for something uh, that short, definitely. And everyone should check out the Great War Group magazine. Anyway, it's got lots of good stuff for... Awesome. People of all ages. Indeed. <laughs> Great advert. Not that you're a member or anything. Uh, <laughs> I thought, like, how did you get into comics? And did you always know you were going to bring history into your graphic novel work? Uh, I, I sort of grew up with comics. Uh, and, and I didn't even really realize that I'd grown up with comics. I was, you know, reading, reading the funniest as a kid. Uh, my dad, was an army brat and he sort of grew up in Germany. So he knew about Asterix and Obelix and uh, Tintin. Oh, Tantan, so, we love him. Tantan, yeah. yeah, so that was, that was my growing up. What's called in France again? I forget. Um, I was gonna fuck Is it Milou? <laughs> Something Could be. I don't, I don't speak French, that's not my. It's definitely Tantan, because I, I, I remember reading um, aloud once somebody going, who's this Tintin of which you speak? You know, it's Tantan. Yeah. All three, three yeah, of us, yeah. front, that's it. We're frantically Googling names, snowy dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought um, at least Asterix and Obelix was, was German because I'd only seen German copies of it because my dad had brought them back with him. So when I 
learned that they were actually Belgian, um, I was very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> that that so, idea, though, of, um, of comic genres transcending language, I think, is a really important one to pull out because although there's, there's always room for interpretation if you actually then take them, the the images and put new language into what I'm going to loosely call here from a speech bubbles is the, the word I'm looking, you know, the, the term. Yeah, it's technical. Technical terms, also speech bubbles. bubbles so. but yeah. I think it is, it is really useful if your pencil passes, if your research, if your artifact research has been absolutely spot on, then it does reduce the risk of error when you're moving from one language to another. Because I know it's one of, the, one of the problems, one of the challenges we have sometimes when we're creating interpretations of history today is that moving from one language to another or talking, between, talking to different audiences, we can lose so much. In interpretation so so comic or uh, comic so this visual illustration um way of surfacing history it actually has huge advantages doesn't it it does uh i i actually the, the european comic scene uh is very different than the american comic scene which has sort of been uh crushed by the comics code authority for like 70 years so american comics are still playing catch up in many regards to the comic scene and other places but indie i mean i like as a kid uh i was very lucky to have things like uh tantan and uh, bone started coming out when i was in middle school and that was sort of breaking the barrier of comics aren't just for superheroes anymore uh and i think that people are still sort of learning and coming up with crazy new things and crazy new ways of using comics as a media to talk would about just not be another marvel film yeah yeah and you know talking about not just history but science and and yeah. uh you know medical technology and you know even the little placards you get on the back of your uh <laughs> when you sit in an airplane and it's got all the safety information that's a comic mm -hmm. and it's very effective because you don't need language you can just you see the the pictures and you know to put on your your mask and all of that i mean there's a lot of practical applications that i think are are just now opening up at least in america it is, it is a very effective medium for for storytelling for for recounting your narrative and thinking specifically about the second world war i mean there are drastic there are massive graphic elements of the war that are difficult to put on the page that are difficult to communicate because the language involved, what it does is it prompts something in somebody's imagination. When you're creating, when you're drawing, do you find it difficult to um, work out what would be acceptable on the page and what would be too, too much? So if you're just... Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of the, the storyteller's dilemma is, especially in terms of like historical fiction or historical fantasy is what I'm doing, is that ultimately... Uh, no matter how accurate you you can be, you can be you know down to the bullets and the buttons. Um, but ultimately, you're making up a story, and you are the ultimate decider of what goes onto the page. Uh, and and you that's a that's you know with great power comes great responsibility. To quote another comic, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you you gotta you make a choice on, on what goes on every page. And um, there's you know you could I I could have chosen to do the dogfight in the first chapter very differently. Uh, but I was thinking about sort of what my audience was, um, what I wanted to put in there, what I wanted to say. You're, you're ultimately showing a snapshot of this time period 
uh, and, and you have to sort of make it work for the story and the point that you're going to do. So as much as I would love to talk about um, uh, the jazz scene in Munich in 1926, which it was probably popping, um, that's, that's, there's no way that I can sort of get, Hans would have been, what, eight or nine at that time period. There's no way I'm going to get an eight or nine-year-old Hans into a 1926 Munich like bar to listen to jazz music. Um, one of the things that I've been sort of like wrestling with is um, the I, constantly gore and violence is is at the forefront. That is a reality um, of war, uh, and that's something that um, is Hollywood isn't going to. Uh, there's there's certain standards of media and portrayal. Um, that certainly I'm adhering to. You don't get to see, you know, Hans's <laughs> torn apart body and his yeah. charcoal plane whole situation, but you don't need to. Um, and sort of, I guess if that's answering <laughs> your question, I'm sort of going off on a tangent. I was thinking back to something you said about having watched Indiana Jones. And I remember there's the the, the eponymous scene where, where the, the Nazi... <laughs> there's this head that melts and I remember seeing like a behind the scenes documentary where they tried to film it two or three different ways and the inverted quotes better they tried to make it the worse it got and they had to make a, a kind of judicious um artistic decision about what would be horrible and what the kids would and what the sense would allow through and I'm, I can imagine that in creating a comic you have the same challenges how do you actually draw something so that so that it's it's okay for the audience and it still meets the expectations of the story and doesn't just um what's the word i'm looking for just does, does, doesn't sex it up too much doesn't sex up the graphic imagery too much yeah in my uh <laughs> so the, the the example that i always hold up um the mummy 1999 is one of the greatest movies ever made oh, um it's... getting it out there right now um yeah 10 out of 10 hugely inspirational to everything I write. There's there's a through line to the mummy 1999. Um, but one of the things that I I watched that as a as a kid in elementary school, and it was like the first horror movie that my parents allowed me to watch since they tried oh, to get me God. to watch the Frankenstein movie that came out in like 1920s, and I was so scared in the first six minutes that I had to turn it off. Um, <laughs> but we, I watched the mummy, and I was enthralled. I was like, this is a big adult scary movie that I'm allowed to watch. And, and I was terrified. I, the mummy scared me. The scene where he like sucks the life out of people scared me. And when I, I like, I have such vivid memories of it. And then when I went back and watched it as an adult for the 500th time, don't, don't add me. I've seen this movie way too many times. I, I realized how much of that violence you don't actually see. There's a lot of shadows on the wall. There's a lot of screaming off screen. There's a lot of panning away from windows. You don't actually see a lot of the, the, the mummy killing people until, you know, the second movie. And I think that's great. I think there's a lot of things that are frankly a lot scarier and a lot better done if they're implied rather than expressly shown. And I, I definitely try and work with that a lot. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop. 
forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.